So I've got to start by keeping a promise uh, to my youngest, Grace and James, in that video, uh, because uh, before I was allowed to sign off on the airing of this video to anyone outside of our family, he said, Dad, you have to promise me that you will tell all the people at all the Creek churches that at no time there on the toilet was I ever without my shorts on. <laughs> and I said, okay. I will make sure I will tell them that there was no actual taking care of business filmed in that video. There was no point in which you had no clothes on. You always were clothed. And he said, okay, as long as you tell them that, it's good uh, to go. But before we jump into the series itself, I wanted to take a moment here on the weekend after Thanksgiving and to report back something that our church had uh, an opportunity to be a part of. Uh, one of our uh, longtime friends and partners is God's Pantry. And so we partnered up with God's Pantry. We, we give financially to them throughout the year, but whenever they need it, uh, we'll send boots on the ground to help them do whatever they need done. So we sent some of our folks from our church uh, that helped pack over 1,070 Thanksgiving dinners. Uh, that's turkey, that's dressing, that's all the fixings, that's everything. And then, here at our church uh, last weekend, uh, we were one of the distribution points. So uh, we had 370 families that showed up here at our church that we provided Thanksgiving dinner for. But overall, uh, because of our partnership with God's Pantry, uh, we were able to provide 950 families in Laurel County, Jackson, and Clay a Thanksgiving meal. And I think that's worth celebrating. I think that's a good thing. And that's because of you, your generosity. Uh, it's making a difference even, even when you're not aware that it's making a difference. But I don't know what Christmas was like in your family. Uh, in my family, Christmas was a big deal. Uh, I always looked forward to Christmas. And because of it, as a kid, it seemed like it took Christmas forever to get here. Uh, as an adult, it seems like every time I turn around, it's Christmas again. But as a kid, I, I would be like, oh my goodness, is Christmas ever going to get here? It just seemed like time got slower and slower and slower, the closer and the closer and the closer we got to Christmas. And then there was that segment of time from August when you started school until Christmas break. And it seemed like August to December. It seemed like it took an absolute eternity. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You would go back to school and then you would begin to look forward to Christmas break and, and all of that, but it seemed like that length of time from August to December, it just took forever. And now as a parent, I know that when August gets here, it's Christmas. Uh, and August is basically, I'm gonna look up, I'm gonna sleep a couple of times and it's gonna feel like it's Christmas. But as a kid, it just felt like Christmas took forever to get here. And then in September, something would happen uh, that would make things better, but also cause things to go a little bit slower. Uh, somewhere in September, this would show up. How many of y'all remember one of these? Uh, this is the holy grail of the holiday season back when I was a child and many of you when you were in childhood. Uh, this is the Sears Christmas Wish Book Catalog. Uh, it was first published back in 1934 and it was published all the way up until 1993. Uh, there's been subsequent re-releases on special occasions since then, but basically it phased out in the early 90s in 1993. And and this, this is a copy from 1992. So, you know, from 1934 to 1993, every single year, kids were getting a copy of the wish book. And there was something for absolutely everybody in one of these books. I mean, if you could think of it, you could find it in one of these books. I mean, clothing, I mean, clothing for winter, clothing for fall, clothing for summer, clo clothing for very special nights when you're married, clothing, you know, 
know, for hunting, and, and there were all kinds of things in there. Exercise equipment, I mean, I mean, every type of exercise equipment, you just need to go to the exercise, you know, there's the thigh buster, the butt buster, the belly buster. I mean, everything that you would need for your home gym. I mean, you could basically stock a home gym out of one of these things. And then there was jewelry. You know, if you needed one of those panda coin rings, how many of y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, because if you didn't have a panda coin ring, you weren't anybody. So you had to have one of those little suckers. And so you just go there, or maybe, you know, you needed to buy, you know, your girlfriend a pink ice ring or pink ice earrings or a pink ice necklace or a pink ice accessory of some kind back in the day. You just go to the Sears wish book. Everything was in there from briefcases to putting greens to video recorders, appliances. You need a new refrigerator? page 421. You need a new dishwasher, it's in there. You need washers and dryers, it's in there. Everything's in there. Stereos, taller than basketball goals. You could order one from the Sears Wish Book. TVs, as large as the SUV you drove to church in this morning. You could order from the Sears Wishbook catalog. You decide at Christmas time, you need a saxophone, you can find it. You need a piano, you can find it. Everything you could ever imagine is in there. But beyond all of that stuff for adults, what was really great was all the stuff that was in there for us kids. Because there was so much stuff in this book for kids. I mean, things I, I, you couldn't even imagine that existed, you found in the wish book. Toys that you couldn't find in toy stores or department stores, you would find in this book. I, I mean, action figures that you could never find in a store. You know, for me, I was a big fan of He-Man. Uh, that was kind of my generational thing, you know, by the power of Grayskull. And, and sometimes it was difficult to find the action figures, you know, trap draw, he might as well have been a unicorn. You couldn't find him anywhere, but you could find him in the wish book. You know, Evil Lynn, I, I wasn't even convinced that they really made an Evil Lynn character, but then in the wish book, you could order her. I mean, it was just amazing. Castle Grayskull, Snake Mountain, the whole thing, you could get all here. Can, remote control cars, remote control boats, you know, remote control trains. You remember those train sets? You know, it's like, you know, where would we put that? And you just wish, you know, and wish that you could just have one of those, but your parents would always remind you, we have no place for that. And then, you know, walkie talkies, you know, they were so big, you could, you know, you just dream, you could talk cross country to someone. I mean, there were just monsters, baseball cards, Ataris, Nintendos, Sega Genesis, bicycles. I mean, I can remember going through that book and making notes and circling things, you know, whether it was Nintendo games or, you know, Atari, how many of you remembers Atari games, you know, Asteroid or uh, Frogger, you know, that was a real riveting game. Just seeing if you're listening, all right? Uh, <clears throat> that was better than you responded, but anyway. You know, I, I can remember just making lists and, and highlighting and writing things down and then, you know, trying to drop hints to my parents and my grandparents and I think about how cool it would be to have this or to have that. And now, you know, as an adult, I look back on all of that and I realize that when I got the Christmas wish book catalog, it really marked the beginning of what was a season of wishing and waiting, wishing and waiting, wishing for that special something or you know that group of some things and, and then waiting to see if it showed up on, on Christmas. And, and it was this wishing and waiting which fueled one of the most magical parts of, of Christmas for us children and it was the anticipation of Christmas. The Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming and, and anticipating it and wishing and waiting and wishing and waiting. Now that I'm a dad as an, of an 11 year old and an eight year old, you know, I realized that it's a child's anticipation uh, of Christmas that's a big part of the magic of Christmas. 
And when you think about it, the anticipation of Christmas is really what, what evokes the joy of the season. And more than that, anticipation is the thing that invites joy into our lives in all the other seasons of life because it's not a well-kept secret. And we all know this to be a fact of life that everyone needs something to look forward to. You need something to look forward to. I need something to look forward to. Otherwise, if we just get trapped in life, if we just get trapped in you know, the mundane routine day in and day out, Pretty soon, joy wanes. Pretty soon, our, our level of contentment and satisfaction in life, it just, kind of, it just kind of wanes. We all need something to look forward to, something on the calendar, so, something that we're planning, something that's gonna happen, you know, whether it's a time of the year, you know, we're looking forward to summer, looking forward to summer, looking forward to spring, you know, whatever it is. And psychologists, psychologists are discovering more and more of the connection between anticipation and joy. And the more anticipation that we can have in our life, the more it invites joy into our life. One person called anticipation just free happiness. That if you can, if you can learn to anticipate something, it's just free happiness. And, and when you anticipate something, it, it's really a sense of confidence that what will happen in the future, it's gonna be good and it's gonna be worthwhile. It's gonna be good and it's gonna be worthwhile. It's gonna be worth waiting on. And as you anticipate it, you actually begin to experience some of that goodness in the present. You, you experience what it's gonna be like in advance. And all of a sudden you're living in hopeful anticipation of something yet to come. And when you live life with hopeful anticipation, it begins to change the way you live life in the present. When you're looking forward to something in the future, it changes something about your life in the present. And we know this, we all understand this. We all live better in the present when we have something to look forward to in the future. It's just the way we're wired. We, we all have a sense of greater motivation or we're inspired deeper when we're looking forward to something in the future. The future is a powerful motivator when it comes to how we live our lives in the present. Now, I say all of that to say this, that wishing and waiting and anticipation, it's at the very heart of the Christmas season. That's what the Christmas season is all about, wishing and waiting and anticipation. But more than that and more important than that, Wishing and waiting and anticipation is at the heart of the Christmas story itself. You see, the Christmas story, as we think of it, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, manger, shepherds, wise men, Virgin Mary, Joseph, and, and all of that. When we think about the Christmas story, it's important for us to understand that the Christmas story is actually wrapped inside of a larger story. And that's the story that I wanna tell us today to prepare us for the rest of the series and to prepare us for the rest of the season because the Christmas story, the, the, the entirety of the Christmas story really reminds us better than I think anything else about the power of hope, about the power of living your life with hopeful anticipation of something worthwhile in the future, something good in the future. Now, when we open up the pages of the New Testament, uh, not only do we find what we think of as the story of Christmas, but we also find in the background, we find a group of Jewish people. We find a group of Jewish believers. We find God's people, a small group of them, a remnant of them, wishing, waiting, and living in anticipation. A, a small group of people that despite all of their circumstances and despite everything that had happened to them and that everything that is happening around them, a group of people who were wishing, waiting, and anticipating the arrival of a Messiah. In fact, there had always been a group of people in Israel's history, in every generation, who had lived their life wishing and waiting and anticipating Christmas. 
living in light of a promise that was once upon a time delivered to their people. And this promise of a Messiah, this promise of a savior, this promise of a king had been passed down from one generation to another, to another, to another, going back some 2,000 years before Jesus ever showed up going back to a man by the name of Abraham. Now, some of this may be familiar to some of you, but maybe not all of you, but it's certainly something that we all need to be conscious of and we all need to keep fresh in our minds because this helps us extract the most of what the Christmas season has to offer us and specifically the Christmas story itself. This is what we find in Genesis chapter 12. It says, the Lord had said to Abram or Abraham, we'll use them interchangeably, go from your country, your people and your father's household to a land that I will show you. God shows up and he begins to talk to this guy by the name of Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave home. I want you to leave everything that you find familiar, everything that you find secure. I I want you to leave everything that is familiar geographically. I I want you to leave. And I want you to go to a very particular place. But I'm not gonna tell you where that place is until you get there. I just need you to start moving. So it was kind of an odd request that God made of Abraham. But then God tried to give Abraham some, some motivation some hopeful anticipation to get him moving, to keep him moving. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, which is kind of interesting because Abraham at this point is not even a great grandfather. He's not even a father. How's he gonna be the father of a nation full of his descendants when he doesn't even have a son? He doesn't have a daughter. He has no one. He, he and his wife, Sarah, they're childless. But yet God says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. One day, your descendants are gonna become a great nation. And Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. And I will make your name great, Abraham. One day, everybody around the world is gonna know your name. And this sounded unbelievable. This sounded impossible. That This was against all odds that something like this could really happen. And then God continues to go on. He says, I'm gonna bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples, all the peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. One day, people around the world, they're going to know your name. And today, people around the world, 4,000 years after this took place, 4,000 years later, people still recognize that Abraham is the founder of one of the world's great religion, Judaism, the Jewish faith, the Jewish people. So, so God, he kept his promise. And today we know who Abraham is. People all around the world, whether they're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, they've heard the name Abraham. His name has become great. Everybody's heard of Israel, which is this nation that was formed by the descendants of Abraham. But more than that, really at the heart of what God was saying to Abraham, which is most astounding of all, he said, Abraham, one day, all the peoples of the world are gonna be blessed through you. In some way, every nation on the planet, every people that's on the planet, they're gonna be influenced by you, affected by you. Uh, Their lives are gonna be the better because of you. And and this was unbelievable. This this sounded impossible to Abraham, but yet he believed what seemed unbelievable. He, He believed even though what seemed impossible, he still chose to believe it was possible. Now, there's something here that's worth pointing out, and, and I don't have time to tease it out, but it, it's, worth, it's worth noting that when he's talking about all peoples, he's talking about us. 
And 4,000 years ago, when this moment happened in history, because all of this is embedded into the storyline of history, this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. This, this, is, this is your history book. This is world history. This is world civ. This is stuff you can go read about. But Abraham, in 2091 BC, is having a conversation with God, and God has you on his mind. God has you in his heart. God is setting a plan in motion to invite the nations of the world back into his family. God is setting a plan in motion to step closer to you and to me to invite us back into his family. And this moment in time is when Abraham chose to believe that something was believable even though it seemed unbelievable. He chose to believe what looked and sounded and felt impossible, that it was impossible. And he believed that at 75 years of age and Sarah, his wife at 65 years of age, he chose to believe what seemed like the end of their story was actually the beginning of their story. And against all hope, he decided to hope. And hope is simply a present confidence in a future reality that isn't yet reality. Hope is believing that what isn't reality, just because God promised that it would be, sooner or later what God promised would be reality, even though it's not current reality, one day it will be reality. And so Abraham believed that, and that's where the story begins with the promise that God made to Abraham. Years go by, and they have no children. Years go by, and Abraham and Sarah, they're still childless, and things, things aren't turning out the way that he thought that they would. And, and that's the way life is, right? That's, that's your life, that's my life. We have these expectations, and maybe the greatest source of our sorrow, our failed expectations. We project all of these scenarios into the future. We think that this is gonna look this way and it's gonna turn out this way and it's gonna be this and it's gonna be that and she'll be like this and he's gonna be like that and then we get into the future and the future becomes the present and none of it looks the way that we thought. And all of a sudden our personal expectations are shattered on the ground and we're walking around with a sense of sorrow and a loss of joy because our expectations betrayed us and that's a little bit of where Abraham is 10 years after God made him the promise. There's still no son, there's still no children and so Sarah, his wife comes along and says, Abraham, I've been thinking, you know, God promised us a son and there's no son yet, so maybe we need to try something. Have you noticed Hagar, you know, she helps out around here at the house. I think you should sleep with her and have a baby with her. And Abraham's thinking, is this a trick question? You know, and she goes, I'm serious. I, 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 you know, I, I need you, I think you should just sleep with her. I think you should have sex with her. I think you all should have a baby together. And Abraham's thinking, well, I'm, I'm gonna have to pray about that. And she goes, you pray about it. He said, I did, okay, I'm in, I, I think it's a good idea. And, and so, you know, it, it was all so human, just as if we would expect it to play out because these are real people and they, they have, they're, they're just, they're like us. They do, they do things like that. And, and so he did, and he hooked up with Hagar and they had a son and his name was Ishmael. And out of Ishmael uh, became all the Arab nations. And we could talk a lot about that, but I don't have time to tell you about it, but there's still a lot of drama that exists 4,000 years later in the Middle East because of what happened in the tents of Abraham. But 25 years after Genesis 12, after a lot of missteps and wrong turns and embarrassing things, God keeps part of his promise to Abraham. And Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. And the promise that God gave to Abraham was inherited by Isaac. And the God of Abraham became the God of Isaac. Now, Isaac had two sons. Um, 
One inherited the promise, the other didn't. It's a great story. I don't have time to tell you about that either. You can go read it on your own. But, but there was a son, Esau, and Esau was the firstborn, but he sold his birthright to his brother, who was a little bit of a con artist, a little bit of a deceiver. Um, his name was Jacob. So the God of Abraham became the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the promise that God gave to Abraham was inherited by Isaac and by Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob would eventually have 12 sons because apparently he had a lot of time on his hand and his wives were there. And so he just, they had a lot of kids, but just because he is the grandson of Abraham, the father of faith, and just because he is the son of Isaac, whose father was the father of faith, don't think for a moment that that family wasn't jacked up. I mean, they were, you think your family's screwed up, you think your family's dysfunctional, you should just go read about their family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the Jewish patriarchs, but they were far from perfect. Amen. I mean, I could tell you things about Abraham that would just cause you to cringe, things about Isaac that would just cause you to, uh. I could tell you things about Jacob. I mean, they were anything but perfect, far from it. And so inside this family, there were all kinds of dysfunction. Sometimes they struggled to tell the truth when the stakes were high, sometimes that they struggled to have functional families and raise functional kids. And sometimes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they made bad decisions. Sometimes they did some really embarrassing things, some really heinous things. Sometimes they didn't love well. They often didn't parent well. And, and it reminds us of something really important that I think we ought to take a moment and point out. Sometimes people of great faith can have weak moments. Sometimes people of great faith can make terrible decisions. You say, why do you, why do you say that? I say that to remind all of us, we shouldn't be so quick to judge someone by their worst moment. We shouldn't be so quick to judge someone because of the struggle of their life or by one season or a couple of seasons of their life. We shouldn't be so quick to write someone off when they're involved in something we say we would never be involved in. We shouldn't write people off when they do something we say we would never do. Because if we decide to write people off like that, we would also have to write off people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. Because this was a circus act. But yet these were the people that God was gonna use to bring one of the greatest things into the world. Now, Jacob, he, he wasn't the best dad in the world because he had a favorite kid. And, and I don't know if, it, if it's impossible not to have a favorite kid. I've always heard people say, I, they're all my favorite. I don't know if that's true or not. But the key is not to let the people who aren't your favorite in your house know that they're not your favorite. Because if the other kids find out they're not your favorite kid, it screws them up. Okay, that's parenting 101 and, and that's just free. You can take that with you. But Jacob, he let everybody else know that Joseph was his favorite son. He gave him special gifts, like a coat of many colors. You remember that from Sunday school? And then all of a sudden, Joseph is hated by his brothers. And so then they decided, we're gonna kill our brother because, you know, isn't that a great Christmas movie on Hallmark? Let's kill our brother. This is, we hate him, let's just kill him. You thought your family was bad, you should read about the fathers of faith. I mean, they really had it going on. Let's kill our brother. But then they decided, no, we're not gonna profit from that, so let's just sell him into slavery. So that's what they did. They, they sold him to a caravan of Midianites and they took him down and sold him to the Egyptians. And so Joseph, the son of Jacob, uh, the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of faith, he, he becomes a slave in Egypt. And his life is one of suffering. It's one of abuse and injustice. 
Uh, Joseph is wrongfully accused and then he's wrongfully convicted. And maybe he endured the worst kind of suffering, which is the suffering that comes from doing what is right and what is good. It's one thing to suffer when you know you've done wrong. It's one thing to know that you're suffering because you got yourself into it. But when you did the right thing, when you did the good thing, but yet you're still suffering, that's difficult. That's a hard pill to swallow, but that was Joseph. He ended up in prison because he did the right thing. He ended up in prison because he did a good thing. He ends up in prison, but in a dramatic turn of events, a great story that I don't have time to tell you, he ends up the prime minister of Egypt. Unbelievable. Rags to riches story. Pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Not really, but kind of. God's a part of this story, but it's an amazing story. He saves Egypt from famine because of his foresight and leadership. And then when he's got all the power and when he's got most of the money, when he's got all the ability to settle all family scores, when he's got the ability to get even, you know what Joseph chooses to do with his brothers? He forgave them. He reconciled with them, which again, headed into this holiday season, this is such an important thing that we learn from the life of Joseph. You will never regret treating right those who have treated you wrong. You will never regret it. I don't care what they said, I don't care how they acted, I, I don't care how, how smug they were, how insulting they were. You will never regret treating right those who treat you wrong. You will never regret forgiving the person who wronged you, who cheated you, who shorted you. You'll never regret letting go of that bitterness or that grudge. You'll never regret it. So don't carry it another season. Don't carry it another day. Let it go. So Joseph, he, he saves Egypt. He saves his family. And now he's prime minister. And Jacob, his dad, and the family of 70 that's been up to the north, they moved down to Egypt in 1876 BC. So why? Because when your son's the prime minister, you kind of want to be close. I mean, things like now or things like then, it's about who you know. And they knew the guy or they knew the guy who was right below, below the guy. And so they moved down to Egypt and they, they enjoy all this favor and all of this respect because they're the family of Joseph. And so they enjoy that. They, they enjoy that association. And then Joseph dies, but Joseph is still revered and respected. So the people of Egypt, they love the family of Joseph. They love his people, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. But we're told that after a period of time, a Pharaoh came to power that didn't remember Joseph. And all of a sudden he looks out and he sees all of these descendants of Joseph, all these Hebrews, all of these Jewish people, and there's so many in number, he sees them as a threat. So what does he do? In 1730 BC, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now all of a sudden, the people of God, the, the people that God said he was gonna bless and that they were gonna bless the nations, all of a sudden they've lost all freedom. And I would imagine this is not the way they thought it would turn out. This is not their expectations. They never went to Egypt thinking that they would be kept there as slaves for the next 400 years. And the promise that God made to Abraham, it has never seemed so far away. These people feel forgotten. 
This is not the way your life is supposed to be when you are loved by God. This is not the way your life is supposed to be when you're blessed by God. You're not supposed to end up in slavery. Not when you're the descendants of the man that God promised one day one of his descendants would bless the entire world. But yet, even in the midst of hardship and pain, even in the midst of this unfortunate series of events in Egypt, we still find a group of people against all hope, hoping that the promise that God made would one day become reality. Fathers and mothers would tell their children about the promise that God made to Abraham. And they would remind them that even though we are slaves in Egypt, God has promised that one day, one day, our people would become a nation and our nation would in somehow bless the world. We're gonna keep on looking to a future that isn't, believing one day that it will be. And so they wished and they waited and with anticipation, they endured a difficult, painful, unwanted, uninvited season. And again, there's something to learn. The promises of God don't insulate us from the pains of life. These are the people that God is using. This is the nation that God has chosen to do something special in the world, for the world. And some chose to believe even when there didn't seem to be a good reason to believe. Some, I'm sure, gave up their faith. Some, I'm sure, thought, well, we would never be here. We would never experience this if God were real. If God loved us, if God cared, if God was really out there somewhere, he wouldn't let this happen to us. He wouldn't let this happen to be. So I'm sure some people let go of their faith. But there were others who were clinging to hope. And so they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they passed that promise down generation after generation. And they prayed and they prayed until it says that God heard their prayer. And God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses shows up and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And it's known as the Exodus that happened somewhere around 1446 BC. And Pharaoh says, take them after some arm twisting. After the plagues, Moses leads God's people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, leads them out of slavery. Now they're free. And now they're on their, land to the, they're on their way to the land of promise, the promised land, the, you know, you've heard of it, the land flowing with milk and honey. This was the land that God had promised Abraham 500 years before. So people were leaving Egypt and hope was high. Perhaps this is the moment that God's gonna keep his promise to Abraham and one of his descendants, maybe it's Moses, he's gonna bless the entire world. They go to the edge of the Jordan River. Moses sends 12 spies over to the land. He says, we're gonna go take the land, but I want you to go survey the land. I want you to go bring back an intelligence report. And so 12 go, many of you have heard this story. 10 come back and say, we can't do it. The enemy's too big, the enemy's too great. We can't go in. Two of them said, we can go, God promised it. It's ours for the taking. And no one wanted to listen to the voice of Joshua and Caleb. And so because of the 10 and the faithlessness of that generation, God said, you'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And all of a sudden it was a gut punch. Rescued out of slavery. It seems like everything's about to turn around and then all of a sudden it's a setback, another setback. It's one flipping thing right after another. Now they're wandering in the wilderness. Barely some of them holding on to hope. 
still wishing and waiting and anticipating. When will God keep his promise? When will God keep his promise? Moses dies at the end of those 40 years and Joshua takes over. And Joshua leads what's known as the conquest of the land of Canaan. You can read about it in the Old Testament book of Joshua. It was a five-year campaign, a military campaign. They go in and they take the land. It was not the people's land, it was God's land. And God had decided that that land belonged to the descendants of Abraham. So they went in and they reclaimed the land that God had given them, the land of promise. And all seems good. They're finally in the place of promise. God has kept yet another one of his promises to Abraham. They're living in the land that he promised 500 years before. But there's something happening below the surface. The people of God, they're becoming apathetic and they're growing complacent and their blessings are becoming liabilities and their hearts are drifting away from God. So they begin this slow drift and as they drift away, 20 or so years go by and Joshua's on his deathbed and he, he gathers all the 12 tribes and the heads of the 12 tribes and the leaders and the judges of the land and he brings them all together and he reminds them at the end of the book of Joshua, he reminds them about God's promise to Abraham and God's promise to Isaac and God's promise to Jacob. He reminds them about what God had done for them, how God rescued and redeemed them out of the land of Egypt and slavery, how God preserved them in 40 years of wandering aimlessly in the wilderness and how God had faithfully allowed them to win the victory and now live in the land that he had promised to them centuries before. And now they're living in cities they didn't build and they're eating from vineyards that they didn't plant. And Joshua looks at the people and says, so your response must be to fear the Lord and serve him, to fear the Lord and serve him, to put away the gods of your ancestors. Choose this day, Israel, whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, far be it from us, Joshua, that we wouldn't serve him. Joshua died, the elders died. And this is what the book of Judges says about what happened next. This is after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. An entire faith was abandoned by a generation. It seemed like an entire generation had relinquished the faith of their fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers. And what happens next is one of the darkest periods in all of Israel's history. It's recorded in the Old Testament book of Judges, and it covers a period of about 330 years. And some of the stories that are in the book of Judges, we really can't tell those to children because they're so graphic and they're so heinous. The shadows of sin descended on the land of Israel and the abandonment of faith, it portended the dark days that were to come for the next 300 plus years. These were days that seemed irredeemable. These were days that seemed hopeless. At the end of the book of Judges, the writer says, let me just tell you, let me just give you a, a glimpse of what it was like in those days. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody decided what was right for them. Everybody got to decide what was wrong for them. Everybody decided to adopt their own moral code. 
Everybody decided to throw absolute moral truth aside. Everybody decided to reject the moral authority of God, of absolute truth. So everybody just decided we're gonna do whatever we wanna do, whenever we wanna do it, whoever we wanna do it with, however we wanna do it, we're just gonna do it. And it doesn't take long when you live life like that for things to go off the rail. And it seems as though there's nothing good going on in the midst of all of this. But yet there's one little bitty book plugged into your Old Testament called the book of Ruth. And it's like, why is that book in there? Because the book of Ruth is happening at the same time that there's no king in Israel. The book of Ruth has taken place when everybody's doing right in their own eyes. And when it seems like there's only darkness, there is a flicker of light down near Bethlehem because there is a love story brewing between Ruth, a Moabite woman who's not even Jewish, and a wealthy landowner, a Jewish man by the name of Boaz. And one day Boaz, he looks out there and he sees this hot looking lady named Ruth grazing in his field. And he says, hey, you're welcome in my field anytime. And so he told his men, hey, you leave her alone. And he left behind handfuls on purpose so she could have food to eat because she was on public welfare. And then one day he finally just goes up and says, honey, I'll be your Boaz if you'll be my Ruth. And she said, I'll be your Ruth. And he, he said, I'll be your Boaz. That's not really what happened, but it's kind of the way it happens in my mind if it were made for Hallmark. And, and so they get married. And it's like, what's the point of that? Because Ruth and Boaz become the great grandparents of Israel's greatest king when there's not even a kingdom yet. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, Abraham, kings will come from you. Ruth and Boaz will become the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus of Nazareth. So when it seemed like God was doing nothing at all, God was up to something really important. The people wanted a king and so Saul was crowned king and the reason they wanted him to be king was because he was tall, dark and handsome and obviously if you're tall, dark and handsome, you'll make a great king, but that wasn't true. God took the kingdom away from Saul and sent Samuel to a place down in Judea near Bethlehem to the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. His name was Jesse. And he said, I want you to go to the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. His name is Jesse, and I want you to find his son, David, and anoint him to be king. And David, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, will take the throne of Israel in 1010 BC and become the greatest king in the history of that people. David was everything that Saul wasn't. Everything that he touched turned to gold. He led the people to victory after victory, to one level of prosperity after the other. One day he's thinking about how good God's been to him and he says, you know, I wanna do something for God. And then the prophet Nathan shows up and says, David, I know you wanna do something for God, but God has decided also to do something for you. And Nathan speaks this promise to David on behalf of God. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel chapter seven. He says, David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. God makes a promise to Abraham. One day, one of your descendants will bless the entire world. 
Kings will come from you, Abraham. A thousand years later, God shows up and offers a promise to David, one of the descendants of Abraham, and says, David, one day one of your descendants will become king over a kingdom that will never end. David passed away. His son Solomon became king. Solomon was wise, but in all of his wisdom, even though he ushered in the golden era, he followed after the pagan gods of his wives that he'd married. When Solomon died in disgrace and idolatry, his son Rehoboam, an arrogant punk, took over, refused to listen to the counsel of the wise men of his generation. And so because of his lack of leadership, Rehoboam, he split the kingdom. The kingdom split in two, there was civil war. 10 tribes went north, two tribes stayed to the south. In the north for the next 300 years, it was gonna be chaos. Down in the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, it was gonna be kind of like us, up and down, up and down. They're in and out, they're hot and cold. But in the north, they never turned back to God. And in 722 BC, God allowed judgment to knock at their door when the Assyrian empire came in and destroyed the 10 tribes of Israel. The prophets said to the southern kingdom, get right or God will allow the consequences of your choices to knock at your door as well. And they ignored the words of the prophets. And God allowed the Babylonians to come in in 586 and Jerusalem was destroyed. The people of God were carried off into captivity, enslaved once again the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that a descendant of Abraham would bless the entire world seemed laughable. A promise to David that one of his sons would rule over a kingdom that would never end seemed impossible. But after 70 years of being in captivity, God's people came back home. They rebuilt the walls of the city. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt temple, the temple. And they began to put their lives back together. And all of a sudden, maybe once again, people began to believe Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment that God keeps his promise to Abraham and David. Maybe the whole world will be blessed through us. But for the next few centuries, Israel would be continued to be dominated by the empires of the world. And all during that time, in 586 BC, there was never another king of David, another descendant of David who would rule over Israel even until this day. But even though during that time when they had no king, where it seemed like the dynasty of David was over, they still clung to hope. They held on to promises like this, where God said, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Israel, don't lose hope. I'm gonna make you a light to all the Gentiles of the world. That's all the non-Jewish, that's us that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. I've still not forgotten my promise to Abraham. And so they were clinging to hope. Promises that seem so unlikely, so impossible. And as the Old Testament ends, the last prophet, Malachi, shows up and echoes the promise that God spoke to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before when the prophet said, my name will be great. Abraham, I know I promised you that your name will be great, but 
God is promising the nation of Israel, my name will be great among the nations. Not just this nation, but among all nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. It was God's way of saying, don't lose hope. Anchor your hope to my promises. I have not forgotten. And then as we open up, Luke chapter one. The Persians have gave way to the Greeks and Alexander gave way to the Romans. And as you open up the New Testament, there's a new king that controls Israel. His throne is not in Jerusalem, but his throne is in Rome. His name is Octavian, he's Caesar Augustus. But something's happening when it seemed as though nothing was happening, God was at work. And it says in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary and the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. and You are to call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And the angel said, for no word from God will ever fail. Because every promise God makes, God keeps. And even when things seem impossible, the promises of God are inevitable. No matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how unfortunate, how unwanted, how uninvited, when things seem impossible, that what God said will happen will never happen, when it seems impossible, know that it's inevitable. That's why we're never without hope that we can wish and wait and live our lives with this hopeful anticipation that what God said will be reality, will one day be reality. That we can anchor our hope to the promises of God because hope was the backbone of Israel. It's how they kept moving forward. They didn't give up, they didn't give in. When it was one setback after another and one gut punch after the other, they refused to throw in the towel because of their hope and hope will be what will keep you and I and us moving forward in the face of some of the worst that life can throw at us. That we can move forward knowing that what God has promised, God will do. We will see the light that's beyond the darkness. In the face of what is impossible, we will see what is possible. A hope that is confident that what God said will be future reality, will be reality someday. Because God's promises, that's what our future looks like. 
If you wanna know what your future looks like, it looks like the promises of God. In your future, there's peace. Because Jesus said, peace I'll leave with you. Not peace is the world I give you, but peace as I give to you. There's peace in your future. A peace that passes all understanding. Anxiety may rule the moment, but there's peace in your future. There's love in your future because nothing shall separate you from his love. His love will never fail you. There's forgiveness in your future because he's faithful and just to forgive us every time we confess our sins. There's joy in your future because weeping may endure for a night, but joy is promised to come in the morning. There's goodness in your future because every good gift and every perfect gift, it comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's purpose in your future. Nothing you go through is in vain. Nothing you face is without meaning. None of it will be wasted. There's provision in your future. No such thing is lack because the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want anything. The promises of God, that's what your future looks like. That's what you can anchor your hope to. There's freedom in your future. Because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. There's heaven in your future. Because if I go away to prepare a place, I will come again to receive you unto myself. There's glory in your future. Because I reckon that the momentary afflictions of this present world is not to be compared to the glory that awaits for me as I'm changed from one level of glory to another. There is a new world to come in my future. A kingdom where there is no sin, there's no sorrow and no death. That's what my future looks like. That's what your future looks like. No matter what yesterday looked like, no matter what today looks like, that's what your future looks like. That's what the promises of God are, a window to your future. We're gonna sing a song that begins with these words, promise maker, promise keeper, you finish, what you start, and that's who he is. That's what he does. He's a promise maker, but he is a promise keeper. Father, remind us that Christmas is a story of hope, stubborn, rebellious hope. Hope that keeps us going. Hope that keeps us from quitting. Hope that we have to cling to sometimes by what seems like a fleeting grip, but may we cling to hope, cling to your promises, knowing that you keep every single one of them. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,